Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. But I'm Pastor Ben. It's my privilege to share God's word with you this morning. And to do that, I got to take you back in time to 1989. I was a young kid at that point in time, and I got some very, very exciting news. The state of Minnesota, my home state, was getting a professional basketball team. The NBA was expanding, and so we got one of the expansion teams, the Minnesota Timberwolves. And I was so excited because I loved basketball. And I thought, maybe someday I can go and watch the Timberwolves in person and see a real live professional game with the really tall people playing. I really wanted to have that experience, and so I was beyond excited. Fast forward eight years, I wasn't excited anymore because the Timberwolves were horrible. For eight years, we did not make the playoffs. And in the NBA, it's almost nearly impossible to not make the playoffs. That's how bad we were. But then, in 1997, we made the playoffs, finally, and were quickly eliminated in the first round. And then that happened seven years in a row. Got to the first round, got booted out. Seven times this happened. And then in 2004, our fortunes changed because the Timberwolves were good. I mean, really good. Not like just good enough to make the playoffs and lose, but, but really, really good. They ended the season with the second best record in the NBA, the best record in the Western Conference. We had the most valuable player on our team in Kevin Garnett, and we were certain that we were going to go to the NBA Finals. But there was one problem, the Los Angeles Lakers and all of their history and all of their talents. And in 2004, the Lakers were unbelievable. They had two future Hall of Famers already in Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. You probably recognize those names even if you don't watch basketball. They had a coach you've probably heard of if you're from around here. His name is Phil Jackson. Right? He was the coach of the Bulls in the 90s when they were the best team on the planet. And now he's coaching these guys. And then to make matters worse, in the offseason, the Lakers added two more players, a guy named Carl Malone and another guy named Gary Payton, two other future Hall of Famers. So in this 2004 Los Angeles Lakers team, there was five future Hall of Fame talents. So guess who the Timberwolves had to play in the Western Conference Championship Series? The Los Angeles Lakers, who, by the way, used to be the Minneapolis Lakers before they were stolen from Minnesota and drugged down to California. So we played the Lakers, and you are not going to believe what happened. In six games, the Timberwolves fought and fought and fought and fought, and they won to make it to the NBA Finals. And that would be a great story if it was true. But this is not a Disney movie. 
The Timberwolves lost in six games, so they did try their best. But here's what makes it worse as a Timberwolves fan. Not only did we lose, but someone in this room who's talking to you right now had Game 7 tickets. They did not get to Game 7, making my ticket worthless. So the Lakers went on to the NBA Finals, and they played a team called the Detroit Pistons, which you're probably familiar with. It's another one of those teams that was really, really good, especially in the 80s. They had a lot of Hall of Fame players on their team in the 80s. But in 2004, there was not a single future Hall of Famer on their team. They honestly, individually, were, were not that talented. In fact, as I was preparing for today, I went online and Googled their roster in 2004 just to figure out if I could know one name of one player on that team. This Pistons team, this nameless and faceless Timber, or, uh, sorry, Pistons team had to play the mighty Lakers. So what do you think happened? Right? Life isn't a Disney movie. So it was the Lakers who came out victorious once again to add to their legacy and their stacks of trophies. But once again, that's not actually what happened. It was the Pistons in five games that would beat the Lakers, which means the Lakers only won one game of the seven-game series, and the Pistons took home the trophy. Now, how is this possible, right? This team did not have nearly the talent. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the legacy of the Lakers. They didn't have the coach. They didn't have the players, right? They weren't faster, stronger, or more skilled. How, how did they beat the mighty Lakers when no one else could? The answer is unity. They were an amazing team. Not amazing, amazing individuals, an amazing team. And they beat the disunified Lakers. Because when you have a bunch of people who have Hall of Fame credentials, guess what they bring with them? Hall of Fame egos, don't they? And that can become a challenge and it creates disunity. And so these Pistons knocked off the Lakers to win the NBA championship in 2004. You see, all of us know how devastating disunity can be. Whether it's in our marriage, or if it's in our organization, or a sports team that maybe we played on or currently playing on, right? It's in our friend group. When there's disunity, things just kind of crumble. But when there's unity, we can reach our potential. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus says over and over and over again that he wants us to be one. His desire is that we are fully unified because he knows that if we're unified as a church, nothing can stop us. Our mission will always prevail if we are unified. However, if we are disunified, we'll fall apart. We'll never reach our potential. So today, as we step into part five of our sermon series, Credo, we're actually going to encounter a section of the creed that's going to feel a little bit divisive. It's going to feel like it's going to bring disunity. In fact, as we've said the creed, maybe this part of the creed has made you uncomfortable along the way. But before we get there, we got to talk about Paul. See, Paul wrote a great section to the church in Ephesus, recorded for us in the book of Ephesians, about unity. So we're going to go to Paul's words today, and this is what he says. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul starts off with this word, which does not sound unifying, this word prisoner. Now, when we think of a prisoner, we don't think of unity, we think of disunity, right? Those are the type of people that actually create discord in our culture, and that's why they're in prison, right? They rob somebody, or they embezzle money, 
Maybe they murder somebody or maybe they abuse somebody. And because they create disunity, they end up in jail, right? That protects our society. So it's really strange that Paul would, would use this word. But Paul uses this word because he's very familiar with this word. You see, Paul had spent some time in jail. He was a prisoner. He'd spent some time in a prison and he'd spent some time under house arrest because he created disunity. At least that's how people perceived it. In fact, one time, motivated by unity, Paul did something that was just unacceptable in that culture. You see, in that day when the temple still existed, there was different layers of the temple that, that you could go into depending on who you were. So if you were a male, you could go a little bit further than a female. If you were a Jewish person, you could go a little bit further than a Gentile or a non-Jewish person. If you were higher ranking like a priest, you could go even further. And if you were the high priest, you could go to the furthest part of the temple. So the temple was very clear cut that it had specific rules and specific places where you could go and where you should not go. But God had been speaking to Paul. God had been teaching Paul. And what Paul was learning on his spiritual journey is that all people, all of God's creation, are we are created equal. That means that men and women were on the same playing field. That means that black and white were on the same playing field. That means that Jews and non-Jews were on the same level. And Paul was internalizing this truth and then he was living this truth and so he actually brought in a Gentile person and he brought them all the way into the Jewish court, which in his mind was probably an act of unity, right? You are the same as me. I'm gonna bring you a little bit further. But of course, people got very, very, very upset because he was breaking the rules and he, of course, then was creating disunity. So what did they do with Paul? That's right, they threw him into prison. So he was very aware of what got you into prison. He was very aware of what prison was like. But notice what he says. He says, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. So obviously his motivation was, was godly, right? He was motivated by God. He ended up to be a prisoner. But this is also a, a metaphor in our lives. It's a metaphor about the Christian life. You see, as Christians, we actually opt into this relationship where we become a prisoner of God. Now to the outside world, if you're not a believer, this doesn't sound that attractive, right? To have somebody rule over you doesn't sound that much fun. But as a Christian, we know that to step into this relationship is life-giving, where the God of the universe is telling us how we should order our lives. And that brings us life because he loves us and he knows what we should do. In fact, this will maybe help you understand, have you ever been really, really stressed out in life? Maybe you're overworked, the bills just keep coming in, there's no money, the kids will not leave you alone and your wife will not stop pestering you about sanding the playset in the backyard that's oddly specific. We don't need to get into that right now. Have you ever been stressed out before? Right, you get stressed out and you think, wouldn't it be nice if I could live in an environment, even if there was a lot of rules, but I didn't have the stress? Right, maybe you even said it this way. You said, you know what? I don't think I would mind prison that much. Now, not like maximum security where you're fearing your life, right? But like, you know, like, hey, I, I, I embezzled some money and I'm sitting here, it's kind of a cush, I, I get a queen size mattress type prison, okay? Think about it. You wake up in the morning, your clothes are provided and washed for you. Now they're all yellow and it's a jumpsuit. That's not great for style, but at least you don't have to think about that, right? 
You put on your jumpsuit, you go to breakfast, they feed you. You go into the yard, maybe you play some basketball. You come back in, you have lunch. It's provided for you. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to buy it. Then you go back out, maybe you lift some weights. Then you come back in and you have dinner. And then you watch some TV, you read a book, maybe you get a degree, who knows? Then you go to bed. No stress, no bills. Sometimes I think maybe that wouldn't be too bad, but of course, I also know that would be a very unwise move on my part. But when we step into this relationship with God, where we are prisoners of God, that's what it's like. We don't have to figure life out every step of the way. We don't have to figure marriage out every step of the way. We have God's word, which teaches us his truth from front to back. And we get to use that as a guide in life. And that brings life into every avenue of our experience. Well, Paul goes on and he says this next. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So Paul is speaking about this theme of, of unity and he wants us to be unified. So here's his little cheat sheet, right? If you're experiencing disunity or if you wanna be unified, he gives you four different ways to accomplish this goal. And these are, are great things, right? So if you're married, this is something good to pay attention to. If you're in an organization or you're leading, this is something to pay attention to. If you're in a sports team or if you're in any environment that has a group atmosphere, a team necessity, this is something to pay attention to. Look what he says. First of all, he says, be humble. Now what's humility? Humility is assuming that somebody that you're talking to or engaging with might actually know something that you don't know. That allows you to have real conversations and experience real growth. Now, not being humble is the opposite. And probably some of us struggle with this. I know I can struggle with this at times, to be, to be honest and candid. And I see some of you guys laughing, which means that your wife has already hit you. And so she already says, you need to be a little more humble. The lack of humility sounds like this. I know everything and I surround myself with people who will agree with that statement, right? They'll just say the same things that I already said. That's a lack of humility. But to be humble is a unifying thing because it allows us to learn from others and have real meaningful conversation. Then Paul goes on, he says, be gentle, right? Even if you do know it, even if you have the truth, don't use the truth as a jackhammer Right? Don't use it as a sledgehammer. No, use it as a, a healing balm in that relationship. And he says, be patient. Right? The truth is, even if you are humble, even if you have the truth, and even if you present it well, people might not get it right away, which means you need to be patient. Continue the conversation, continue to learn, and continue to offer the truth. And then he wraps the whole thing up with this last one. Be loving. Right? What is love? It's treating somebody like you want to be treated. That's what love is. So Paul says, be loving. And if we can do this and put these four principles into our life, guess what we'll find? Unity. And the beauty about this section of scripture is that you don't even have to be a follower of Christ to have this truth work in your life. Right, if you can be humble and patient and gentle and, and loving, it'll find restoration. It will create restoration in your life. But Paul's about to make a shift. He's gonna move from general truth to very specific truth about Christians, about our family. This is, this is what he says next. Making every effort to maintain the unity 
of the spirit in the bond of peace. So now he's talking about the family, right? He's talking about the family of faith. And look what he says. It's really interesting. He says, maintain the unity, right? Which implies that we already had unity. We just need to go back to where we found our unity. So how do we know if we're disunified? Well, he says what we would find if we were unified, we'd have peace. And in our lives, when we don't have peace, that's a good indicator that we don't have unity. So what do we unify around? Well, this is what he says. We unify around this idea that there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope of your calling. So he starts using this, this word over and over and over again, this word one, right? So he says there's one body. There's one family of faith. We're all connected to each other, whether we like it or not, by Jesus Christ, right? We're all connected by Jesus Christ. He also says we have one spirit, right? In scripture, we're told that, that when we have Christ in our lives as followers of Christ, we are given this gift of the Holy Spirit. What he doesn't say is there's a Pentecostal Holy Spirit, there's a Baptist Holy Spirit, there's a Presbyterian Holy Spirit, there's a Methodist Holy Spirit, and of course, the Lutheran Holy Spirit. No, he doesn't say that at all. There's one Holy Spirit that lives within us and indwells us and that connects us to one another. And he says there's one hope. Well, what's the hope of our faith? The hope of our faith is connected to the person of Jesus Christ, that his promises, his teachings are true and what he did on the cross is effective. So that's the hope that we hold on to, that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all on the cross and his words are true. It's not about what we have done. It's not about the promises that we make. It's not about the work that, that we do. In fact, if we were basing it on ourselves, we know we'd be in, in big, big trouble if we were honest. But we put the hope in Jesus Christ. And as soon as we start putting the hope in ourselves and our work and our promises, we're talking about a very different family. But Paul moves on. There's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Once again, these, this unifying unifying truth. There's one Lord, right? Jesus is the boss of our lives. That, that's the idea of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We go wherever he leads us. There's one faith, right? We have one creed, one belief system that we unite around, and we have Holy Scripture that guides us to that truth, and we have one baptism. Now, when Paul wrote this, there wasn't the infighting about baptism like we have today, right? Baptism in that day was a unifying thing. If you were baptized, you are part of the family, you were connected to Jesus Christ, and, and we were all on the same team. But we know today that's not the same thing in modern Christianity. We know that depending on your label, on your sign, or on your door, that actually dictates your understanding of baptism. Now, the reason we have this divide is because we serve an infinite God and we have finite minds. Right? So we're trying to understand an infinite being, even though we do have God's word, which is truth from front to back, as we try to understand God through his word, we still divide, we still don't quite get it, we still don't agree. And so we divide over how much water is used or how much water should be used, when the water should be used, when it shouldn't be used, and we fight over this. But baptism was not meant to be divisive. Baptism was meant to be unifying. In fact, in the Lutheran church, I think we do something that's, that's pretty, pretty good. We see, we don't demand that you be rebaptized when you join a Lutheran church because we do believe there's one baptism. So if you grew up in a Baptist church and you were baptized and you come to Lutheran church, we don't rebaptize you. 
If you're baptized in a Methodist church and you come here, we don't rebaptize you, right? If you are baptized in a Christian church, we welcome you in. No more conversation. You're a part of the family. We're glad you're here. Now, if you went to a different denomination, potentially, they might actually make you be rebaptized, depending on, on your spiritual journey story. But as Lutherans, we really do believe there's one baptism that unites us, even if you do it a little bit different than we do. Well, Paul goes on. He says, there's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So once again, he uses this word one more time, word one, and there's one Father. Now, if there's one Father and we are all united, that means that we are sons and daughters of that Father, which means whether you like it or not, I'm your brother. Whether I like it or not, you're my brother and sister. So we're one big, crazy, sometimes dysfunctional, family of faith, but it's a beautiful, unifying thing. So Paul closes with this. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So here's one more important principle that we need to hold on to. If we want unity, we need to offer grace. Now, why do we offer grace? Because of what Christ has done. Christ has put his life on the line, died on the cross, and extends us grace time and time and time again, no matter how time, many times that we screw up because he loves us. He extends that grace. And so as believers, we also extend grace time and time and time and time again. No matter how irritating people are, no matter how many times they have hurt us, we extend grace. And we might as well get used to it, right? Because we have one big family connected by the work of Jesus Christ and connected by our dad in heaven. That's a big family, which means if we can't get along in this life, I don't know how much fun heaven is going to be because we're all going to be together at one big family reunion. So we might as well figure it out while we're here, right? And we extend grace. So let's get back to the creed. I told you before, there's a section of the creed that feels like it's a, a disunifying concept. In fact, some of you guys have told me that when we get to this part of the creed, it makes you feel very uncomfortable. Or when we get to this part of the creed, you just can't bring yourself to, to say these words. And this is, this is the section I'm talking about. It's the section of the creed where we say the Holy Catholic Church, that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and we believe in the communion of saints. You see, for some of us, the catch is that word Catholic, because when we hear the word Catholic in the creed, we actually default to the Roman Catholic Church. And for some of us, that makes us uncomfortable because we don't want to be a part of a Roman Catholic Church. And, and maybe we've had a bad experience with the Catholic Church. And so it's a kind of a sticking point for us. In fact, oftentimes when people will visit New Life and will do the creed, they'll come up to me afterwards and say, is this a Catholic Church? I say, it's, it's not a Catholic Church. It's not capital C Catholic. It's lower case C Catholic, which means universal worldwide. What we're celebrating when we get to this part of the creed is that we are united through the person of Jesus Christ with believers all around the world. And that's very exciting, that we are a big, diverse family of faith. That's what Paul taught, that we are unified. But there's something else that I love besides Paul's teaching on unification. You see, Paul lived out his life in a way that, that demanded Unification. You see, this is a truth that Paul had, had lived out and bought into, that unity demands proximity. 
You see, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He was a hero. I mean, he was a big, big, big deal. And you'd think that maybe he would sit in his castle and he would, he would write, now obviously they're not typing in that day, but he would write. He would write his books and he would have somebody who was less than him bring them to these churches and they would read them and then they would take these words, sometimes strong words, and then they would ad- adapt to them. That's what you'd think because Paul was such a big deal. But that's not how Paul operated. You see, in many of Paul's writings, we see this. We see that either he, he writes it and says, I'll see you soon, or I just saw you and here's my letter. You see, Paul knew that if he really wanted to help people be unified, if he wanted to be unified with them, if he wanted to affect real change, he had to get real close. So close that he could smell their coffee that they were drinking. Because he knew if he could get real close, he could have real conversations with real people that sparked real transformation. And that's why I believe that in your house or in your apartment, that you already have one of the most powerful tools of unity at your disposal, the coffee mug. Because when you can get close enough to somebody that you can smell their coffee, you can have these real conversations that spark real transformation and produce real amounts of unity in that relationship. So how do we do this? Well, we do what Paul said, right? We're humble, we're gentle, we're patient, we're loving, and we are full of grace. And when we get real close, we find real unity. And as a result, we experience real peace. Let's pray. Somebody.